now hear God's word. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned many days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, statutes, and rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are faithful, I will scatter you. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make them dwell, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. And in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad, when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through 
until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make the beams of the gates of the city and the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. This is the word of the Lord. It's a long reading and I'm sorry, but I had to do it to give you the full context. This happened hundreds of years later after the text we looked at last week in Isaiah, the nation of Israel had been completely and utterly destroyed by the nation of Babylon. They actually burned Jerusalem to the ground. They burned the temple to the ground. And the, and the king Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, took all of the people, completely depopulated uh, the nation uh, and took them all into captivity into Babylon and only left some of the poorest of the people in the land just to tend the farms and the grapevines and things like that. But he took everybody else and repopulated uh, Babylon and, and Assyria and these other areas with the captives from this nation. Now, this is not anything unusual. Uh, even in modern times, even as Steve prayed in his beautiful prayer this morning, people are being relocated by the millions and so this should not come as any surprise. We've seen it happen in our own lifetime, World War I, World War II, uh, the exodus at the, at the turn of last century from places like Ireland and Britain and Europe, uh, the pogroms of, uh, of Russia t- against the Jews, bringing millions of people to the United States and South America and Mexico. Many of our families actually came to the Western Hemisphere through Mexico from uh, the Old World. And so you see these mass migrations, and that's what happened here. And so years later, there had been several emperors, several kings, and now Artaxerxes is on the throne with his queen, and he has a Jewish cupbearer, a man who is not just a servant, he's not just a waiter. This man would have been a very high-ranking person. He would have been in the king's confidence, and he would have been a trusted servant. And so the dialogue that you heard there is very reasonable. Now, what we've been talking about these past few weeks is how to live with a sovereign God. And I told you last week that if you really understand what sovereignty is, you should be a little uncomfortable living with this God. If you're not uncomfortable at some level living with God, the God who is the real God, the God that's sovereign over heaven and earth, then I suggest that you either don't know the sovereign God, you really don't know who He is, or you don't understand what sovereignty is. You see, if we have anything less than a sovereign God, we have just got a God in our own image, which is the basic sin of humanity from the time of our parents, Adam and Eve. They didn't like the God who who had created paradise for them, so they created one in their own image who wouldn't be upset if they took from the tree and ate whatever the fruit was, an apple or a kiwi or a banana or a cluster of grapes, whatever it was. They created a God in their own image and they took and ate in opposition to a sovereign God who had said, no, I give you paradise, but not the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
And this is the great problem that we have today, folks, is living with a sovereign God. Because when things are going great, we love to tip our hat to God and say, thank you, good Lord, you're so wonderful, hallelujah to you, and give Him praise. But when things go bad, when things go south, when the economy turns, or you have a problem with your kids, or your marriage is on the rocks, or you get a dread disease, or God forbid something should happen that's completely unexpected, we tend to question the God who is. Because after all, if He's sovereign, couldn't He have stopped this? If He's sovereign, couldn't He have prevented this? Why is He doing this? And very often, folks, there's absolute silence. We don't hear Him. And we wonder, where is the sovereign God? So, very quickly, what is sovereignty? I told you last week, sovereignty, to understand sovereignty, you have to get a picture of this. Absolute, listen, Absolute, unquestioned power, authority, right, dominion, independence. In other words, he doesn't have to ask anybody your opinion. He doesn't have to cross-check anything with you. He does as he pleases. He is totally independent. He does according to his own good pleasure. In other words, what you see is the picture of a great ancient Near East potentate, a king. Think of a, a king with absolute power who has the control of every single atom and molecule of this earth and every movement and everything that's happening. Now that should send chills up and down your back because we know what that means. If we really stop and think about it, we know what it means. And in the hands of anyone, put that kind of power in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, put that, hands in the, that power in the hands of someone like uh, a Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, put that power in the hands of Stalin or Hitler. And what do you have? You have an absolute, utter tyrant. Yes? So we recoil at the idea of a sovereign having power over us down to the finest degree. And perhaps we should. I wouldn't want them to have power over me, right? How many of you want Congress to have power over you? Raise your hands. Of course not. Why? Because the character of the sovereign is always in question. But what about God? Now you're not talking about a tyrant. Now you're not talking about someone who is cruel and vindictive and capricious and is hiding behind the trees and saying, catch me, catch me if you can. But instead you have a God who has thrust Himself into human history with goodness and kindness and as we saw last week, utter holiness and purity. And so God's sovereignty is conditioned by, think about this folks, by His holiness. And that's who Isaiah was dealing with last week. A God who is sovereign and yet holy and good and righteous and loving. He actually loves us and wants only our good. Now when bad things happen, it's hard to accept that. But I'm hoping that I can show you and guide you into a way where you can actually live at peace with this sovereign God even though at times it's going to be uncomfortable and sometimes it's almost impossible, I would say. And yet, He Himself has made a way for us to live with Him in peace. So what is sovereignty and why do we need it? Well, we talked about that last week. Today, we're going to look 
at five things. I'm going to go through them quickly. I know it's a lot, but we're going to look at five things because Nehemiah is living in captivity, in distress. His nation is in utter ruins. He hears the news that the nation has been destroyed and that the gates are in ruin. They have not rebuilt the city or the temple and he is devastated by it and he wants to take on the task of going back because he has this position now of authority with the king. He feels like he can petition the king for the goods and the services that will be necessary to rebuild the city. And so he takes a chance and he asks the king if he will grant this petition and let him go back for a time and rebuild the city. It's really awesome. Nehemiah is doing exactly what you and I have to do, folks. Every day we have to make choices and we have to find ways to live with this sovereign God. Even though things may be going completely haywire, So here's the five points. Let me give them to you quickly and then we'll go through them. First, every day, every day you're going to have to make choices. And sometimes those choices are made in dire straits. Things are difficult. Maybe things are going great and you're just trying to figure out what college to go to, what school to, who to marry, you know, what job to take. Should I stay in El Paso? Should I leave? Now, if you ask me that question, I'll tell you what God's will is. It's for you to stay in El Paso. No, no. But, But think about it. Every day you have to make choices. Every day you're going to have to respond. That's the second point. You have to choose. You're going to have to respond. You're going to have to respond to the circumstances that present themselves to you. Third, at some point you're going to have to take action. It's no good just to have a choice and make a choice and then sit there and do nothing. You're going to have to actually take action. Fourth, and this is where it gets tough, folks. Listen carefully. I'm going to tell you, expect opposition. Expect trouble. Now let me just see, except for the young kids, because your life's pretty good right now, most of you, but the adults, anybody that's over 12 years old. How many of you have just been smooth sailing? No problems. Come on, let me see some hands. There's one, okay. We'll pray pray for the spirit of lying over there. (laughs) No, it's nothing smooth sailing about our lives, right? You go through all these ups and downs and curves and the wheels come off and you're going sideways at times. You go, what is going on? It's a roller coaster. Well, knowing a roller coaster would be more comfortable because at least you'd be on some tracks. Sometimes you're off the tracks altogether. It can be wild and crazy. You're living with a sovereign God. Expect opposition. And finally, I'm going to talk about one of my heroes, Winston Churchill. Okay, let's go quick. Uh, first choices. Every day, folks, you have to make choices. And that's what happened in Nehemiah. If you look at these first few verses, he's just minding his own business and his brother Hananik shows up and with some other guys and tells him about a terrible situation. He had expected they would at least start rebuilding the city in all these years. It had been decades. But no, they hadn't rebuilt the city. And so he's shattered. He's, he, it's a shame that you don't have the walls built. You don't have the gates put back up. You mean the temple foundations haven't been laid? How is that possible? This is God's country. This is God's house. These are God's people. How could that be? He's shattered. He hears this news of circumstances. He's faced with a choice. What will I do about this? Think of it, folks. Every day you have choices. Some of them are pretty. What am I going to have for breakfast? You know, eggs or cereal. Okay, make a choice. You don't have to go into theological, uh, you know, exigencies to figure it out. But other times you want to know what to do. 
And it's those times, it's that that he's facing. So he has a choice. And how many times, if you pick up your Bible or any good novel, any book, any story, look at a movie, any kind of cinema, and you see that people, the whole idea of a plot is people are presented with circumstances and choices. And they have to make those choices and live with the consequences. And we all want to know what the future is, right? If we could just know the future, we'd know what choice to make, right? But nobody knows the future, right? Except the sovereign God. And often, I tell you folks, very often He doesn't tell you the future. Why? Because you wouldn't move from your bed if He told you the future. You wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. Would you? If He told you what was going to happen... Would you get out of bed in the morning? No, you wouldn't. Unless it was all good. But whose life is that? So no, the choices come. They roll over us sometimes. And we have got to choose. We've got to step up and make decisions. What do I do? And this gets touchy because you're making decisions in light of a a universe, a creation, that is ruled by a sovereign God. And so like I told you last week, we fall into two areas. We become fatalistic. We say, oh, inshallah, whatever God wants, whatever God wills, which is Islam, inshallah. Or in Christianity, in Christian Islam, we say, oh, whatever God wills. God willing. And we use those phrases to sort of medicate ourselves against the sovereign God. I've I've covered my tracks. I've said, you know, if God wills, that's okay. And we kind of cover, make sure it's, it's safe now. But it's not safe. He's not safe. And some of you are saying, I wish I hadn't come to church today. He's killing me. I'd rather you know the God who is than a figment of your own imagination, yes? Because the figment of your imagination will let you down every time. God will never let you down. You may not see it right now, but at the end of the day, at the end of your life, when the trumpet sounds, like that beautiful hymn we sang, and you're lifted up into glory, you will understand, at least in part, what the reasons are for these things, as horrible as they are. As John Newton wrote to his friend who was in dire straits, everything God sends is needful. Nothing can be needful that He withholds. What great words for those of us that are faced with choices Make your choice. And then look what he does. He responds. Look how he responds. This is verses 4 through 11 of that first chapter. He fasts and he prays. He takes time to actually pray. Now, I don't know how long he prayed. He prayed for some days in this occasion. Sometimes you don't have a lot of time to pray. You just have to do it quick. Help, Lord. He gives God praise and adoration, not recrimination, not blame, not a fixing fault. Well, if you were sovereign, you could do this and that and the other thing. No, he gives him praise and adoration. He acknowledges his sovereign God. And he recalls God's promises to him and to the people in verse 5. In verse 6 and 7, he makes confession of sin. Now, all of you know what that is. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, yes? Every human being has sinned. But we like to categorize our sins and put them into, you know, well, mine are not as bad as, you know, Chuck's, and Chuck's are not as bad as Monty V's, for sure. And Monty V's are not as bad as, you know, yours. 
Do you see, we like to categorize our sins, and we like to minimize some, and we like to raise others, and, and our sins always look worse when somebody else is doing them. Yes? Oh, yeah. You know, it's okay for us to tell little white lies, but when somebody else does it and it costs us something, oh my God, that was the worst thing that could possibly happen. Our sins are always there, preying on us. And we must take them serious and take them to God because He can actually do something about your sin that you can't. You see, you can't pay for your own sin. You don't have the currency and you don't have enough of it, even if you had it. So He provides a way, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then he makes his supplication. He says this at the end of the chapter. You heard me read it. Grant mercy in the sight of this man. He's talking about Artaxerxes. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So what he's saying is, I will go. I will do whatever you say. If you make it possible, I will go. And he prays. So here's what we need to do, folks. Make a choice. Then respond. In other words, you turn to God when you make the response and say, I will do what you say. I will go where you send me. I lay the sword of my life at your feet. Command me. You are my king. You are my sovereign. You see, that's, a humili- that's, that's humble. That's true humility. That's the right response. It's hard for us in democratic, representative America where we elect our leaders. It's so hard to get our head around this. But I plead with you to think about it beyond our current modern context. We didn't elect God. He elected you. Now that should do something to you beneath all the controversy of election. Are you listening? Whatever you think about predestination and election, it's not fair, it's this and that. I don't really care. I want you to stop and think for one moment. You didn't elect him. He elected you. What does that do to you? That should crush you to the ground with humility and adoration. And love. You mean to tell me that out of all the people in the world that you set your love on me? Why? Not, oh, why didn't you do it for them over there? That isn't the question. The question is, why me? Then we can talk about them over there, but why me? You see, that will set the stage for the rest of your life. When the humility that you know that He loves you can crush you to the ground. So you're looking, you're talking about a sovereign God, a God who has absolute power and authority and is using it out of mercy and love towards us. Nehemiah knew this and so he took that chance. Thirdly, he takes action. Look at the second chapter. We read those verses and that's where I stopped. Uh, Verses uh, uh, 1 through 9 of chapter 2. He takes action. Nehemiah evidently, now we don't want, I don't like to suppose and I don't like to conjecture. I think that's wrong. But somewhere along the line, because everything came right out, he knew what he wanted to ask the king. He had thought about this, folks. He had thought about what he was going to say when he had the opportunity to talk to King Artaxerxes. And so when the king asked him, what's wrong with you? Today you're unhappy. You've always been pleasant in my sight as you bring me my wine. Why are you sad today? And Nehemiah tells him with, with humility, how can I be happy? I mean, my, my, the country the, where my fathers are buried, where my people are buried, where their graves are, the land is in ruins. How can I live like this? And the king knows something, and he says, what do you want from me? And Nehemiah prays again, just a quick prayer. God help, I'm going to ask him now. Just prays a quick prayer. 
and he tells the king, I need this. And he lays out this long list of things that he needs. This man had thought about what he was going to ask the king. He had laid his plans. He took action. Listen, folks, I'm going to tell you something. Some of you may get mad at me, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's my job to upset your life. Do not, do not take action based on Christian witchcraft and Christian divination. Are you listening? Do not take action based on Christian witchcraft and Christian divination. Now, some of you know what I'm going to say, so I'll just say it. Christian witchcraft and Christian divination is a horrible way of making decisions. You know, you take your, here's the classic one. You take your Bible and you flip it open. I'm going to do what God tells me today. And you just push your finger down on a verse and it says Judas went and hanged himself. Now, oh, they can't be that one. So you flip the page over and it says, go down and do likewise. And you go, oh my gosh. That's the one that everybody uses. But there's many, many others. We tend to take and cherry pick scripture and we find verses, obscure verses here and there, thither and yon, or we'll be reading along in our Bible and we say, oh, God is speaking to me right now. You know, you've got to take, what have I taught you as long as I've been here? You must read your Bible in context. And so God is not telling you when you read Nehemiah for you to get on an airplane, fly to Washington, D.C. and ask to take a bottle of wine to President Obama. That's not what is going on here. You have got to be careful not to degrade yourself into Christian divinity. And people are always looking for a word from God. And so people will come along, they'll come into your life and they'll say, hey, you know, I've been praying for you. You've been on my mind. I've really been praying for you. And I think God has this word for you or wants to say this to you. Here's my word. I'm your pastor and I'm going to tell you. Here's what you say to them. Nothing. But here's what you do. Run for your life. They do not have a word for you. Did you hear what I said? They do not have a word for you. That's their own word that they're going to put on you. If God has a word for you, do you think He's not capable of telling you? He could write it in the sky with an airplane if He wanted to. So these messages that people pass along to one another, taking Scripture out of context, looking for little, reading into the providence of life, just the things that are happening, trying to read God's will, that is Christian divination. It's Christian witchcraft. It's evil and it's bad. Because what we're trying to do, look at the bottom of it, folks, what we're really trying to do is find out what? The future. And God has said, the future belongs to me, the past belongs to me, and the present belongs to me. Why? Why? Past, present, and future belong to me. Why? What's the sermon about? I'm sovereign. So you have to trust your past, your present, and your future to me. All of it. And so to try to pry into the future, to try and peel the curtain back and see the Wizard of Oz pulling the levers and figure out what he's doing is evil. It's Christian divination. All Nehemiah says is, Lord, show me your mercy. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And it will take the the burden off of you of trying to always try to figure out what's going to happen next. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't plan. It doesn't mean you shouldn't prepare. That's silly. 
But it does mean that you can stop fretting about the future and stop trying to, to pry into things that we can't ever know. And there may be times when God shows you in some, some way what you should do, some special way. He's done that to me and I'm sure He's done it to many of you. But when He does it, it's of a different character. It's not coming out of the blue. And if it does come out of the blue, it might happen to you once in your life. Maybe. But when you read the Scripture, you see people living normal lives. And every once in a while, God intrudes. But most people live normal, ordinary lives. They're faced with choices. They have to respond. They've got to take action. And that's what we see Nehemiah doing. Expect opposition. Look, we didn't read this part just because I don't have time, but look at verse 10. When he got there, two of the great powerful men that were there, Shambalat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, they heard that Nehemiah had come with, with letters from the king and that he was there to, to rebuild the city and to set the groundwork for the rebuilding of the temple. And they didn't want any good thing to happen to the people or the nation, so they began to oppose him. And if you read Ezra and Nehemiah and some of these later prophets, they were under constant opposition. And so the the fourth point is to expect opposition. Expect it. And here's another problem that we have, folks, that goes along the same lines of, of these others. We will make a choice. We will make a choice. We will respond in prayer. We'll do everything we're supposed to do. We'll ask God for His blessings and we'll start going forward. We'll take action and actually step out and do it. And then we get hit with opposition and it can become intense. Yes? Have any of you had that happen? The opposition can become intense. And what do we start thinking? It's not God's will. That's the first thing we think. I must have missed His will. Anybody ever have that happen? Yes? I must have missed it because after all, things are not smoothly sailing along. My kids are not perfect. My wife is not, you know, she's not doing what I told her. Uh, well, it could be the other way. My husband, he's not doing what I told him. And we start questioning. Or you sell your business, you sell everything you have, and you move to Orlando to go to seminary like I did in 1997. And it was like the wheels started to come off. And I'm looking back 2,000 miles, 1,810 miles, excuse me, to El Paso, to the grass was greener in Orlando. No, it wasn't. And I'm thinking, what did I do? I have no way back. Everything's gone. Was it God's will? Say yes. Of course it is. Do you trust me? That's what he's saying. Do you trust me? Yeah, I trust you then quit complaining and keep going. And Nehemiah does exactly that. We don't have time to read it, but Nehemiah actually got off, got to the city of Jerusalem. He he got the the leaders of the city together and he said, take me on a tour. I want to see the city. And he goes through the rubbles of the city and then he meets with, he didn't say a word to anybody, just goes and looks, he assesses the situation and he goes back and he tells them, he said, you know, I'm not going to read it to you, but you can look at it. It starts in verse 17. You see the trouble we are in? This is what he says to his leaders. You see how bad things are? This is horrible. This is terrible. He doesn't paint a rosy picture. Everything's going to be fine. Oh, you just watch and see how great God's going to do miraculous things. He doesn't say any of that. He said, you see how terrible it is? It's really bad. Come. Come. Let us build. Yes, come, 
Let us build. Now that's the kind of man I want to be. Yes? Isn't that the kind of person you want to be? You look at the horrors of life and all day, everything's upside down. You go, no, no, no. Come, let us build. Why? Because we live with a sovereign God. We live with a sovereign God. Once you make a choice, once you take action, expect opposition, but don't ever try to read into the opposition God's will. Oh, he must not want me to do this. Oh, he, I must have missed him. If you're there, he wanted you there. Yes? Could not have happened otherwise because he's sovereign. So what does that have to do with Winston Churchill? Because the fifth point is never, never, never surrender. Never give up. Those of you that are old enough to remember, uh, the Nazi army had overrun Belgium and France and had the uh, British Expeditionary Force pinned down at Dunkirk, 338,000 men plus 20,000 French uh, soldiers, and they were going to annihilate the British Expeditionary Force. And this was at the beginning of World War II, before the United States was even in the war. And the great armada of fishing boats and, and pleasure craft and all the other boats they could muster went across the channel and started to ferry these soldiers back and they ended up rescuing all of them plus the 20,000 French soldiers. And Winston Churchill went to Parliament and to the nation at that most cri critical time when they were losing the war and there was no hope. And I'm only going to read you this little part. Please listen and think about this because this is what... I wish we had leaders like this, yes? Who knew how to speak this way. Who would tell us the truth instead of relentlessly lying. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag nor fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and in the, on the ocean. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend this island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were to be subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to rescue and liberate the old. What God is telling us, folks, is that at this time in history, in your life, we are in dire straits. The world is heading towards God and only knows the cataclysms that are ahead in this world. And so we, as the people of God, as light and salt in this world, we have got to prepare ourselves, yes, for that great onslaught, we have got to step up and never give up. Come, let us build. Come, let us build. Why? Why would we do that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Jesus 
entered that same world. He entered a world occupied by foreign forces, by Rome. He entered a world where there was constant and complete opposition. He made choices every single day to put his life out on the line for those whom he loved to the extent that he went all the way for you and I to the cross. All the way. Every choice. He responded in fasting and prayer. In fact, the the book of Isaiah said he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, that he wept bitterly over the the conditions of, of his people and his country, that in his eyes he was looking forward to you and I, thinking there are more people out there, more generations of people who will someday trust in me. I have got to go all the way. And the final words he told his disciples, which are our words, he is speaking now to you. His final words were, come, let us build. Go into all the world. Yes? Make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Come, let us build. I pray you'll follow this great king. There's no one like him, folks, who laid his life down for us on the cross to make that way, pave the way ahead for us to victory. It's going to be hard. Just like the troops that landed in Normandy on D-Day, they had a long, long road ahead, months to win. But the victory was won that day. And that's the victory at the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for laying for us this groundwork, this foundation. You are a sovereign God, and while we don't always understand you, in those times of doubt and fear, when the circumstances of life are presenting us with so many problems, exigencies, difficulties, that we don't know how to get our heads or our hearts around, they're so painful, and yet... We can look to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. We can look to him who for our sake suffered such opposition even to the cost of his own life. Rise up in us, Father, and give us a heart to build, to come and build to follow the sovereign God. We thank you and praise you in his great name, the name of our Savior. Amen.